An important message from Blue Ridge Hospice. There may be several hospices now claiming to serve the area, but Blue Ridge Hospice is the only local hospice that has been serving here for 40 plus years, operates the only hospice inpatient care center, conducts the only community-wide grief and bereavement programs, offers a nationally recognized music therapy program in conjunction with Shenandoah University, outscores every other Virginia hospice in Medicare's quality scores, and so much more. Blue Ridge Hospice, the first, the best. Find out more at blueridgehospice.org. The new heart failure guidelines by the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association were released this month. Last week, we summarized heart failure staging, classification, and diagnostic workup. And you can find the contents of the first part as audio in the last week's episode of CardioBuzz, and also as a video on the CardioBuzz YouTube channel. This week, we will summarize the management of heart failure from the recent ACCHA guidelines. Again, bring in your coffee because the episode will be rich in information and will need all your attention. Cardio Buzz is your weekly cardiology podcast. We present late-breaking research, conference proceedings, guidelines, and interviews with key opinion leaders. Cardio Buzz is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. The guidelines divide the management of heart failure between the stages. Stage A which is at risk for heart failure, B, before the symptoms occur, C, is symptomatic, and D, is advanced heart failure. For stage A, to prevent the progression of myocardial injury, patients who are at risk for heart failure, stage A, they need to manage the systolic blood pressure, preferably to a target that is less than 120 millimeters mercury, because we knew from the SPRINT trial that lowering the systolic blood pressure to less than 120 millimeters mercury reduced the incidence of heart failure by 38%. Coronary artery disease should be optimally managed. Blood sugar should be controlled with an SGLT2 inhibitor. We should use scores to predict heart failure development, like the Framingham Heart Failure Risk Score, Health ABC Heart Failure, or the ARIC Risk Score. The integration of these risk scores into clinical practice has shown to improve the clinical outcomes. For stage B heart failure, the same measures apply of blood pressure control, optimal management of coronary disease, controlled blood sugar by SGLT2 inhibitors. But here the medical therapy gets more detailed. These are asymptomatic patients who got a form of myocardial injury or a structural change. And in these situations, the following agents are of proven value. Statins in patients with history of coronary disease or MI, they can reduce heart failure hospitalization. This is based on several meta-analyses of trials that showed that statins reduce the development of heart failure and reduce heart failure hospitalization in patients with coronary disease. Patients with a recent myocardial infarction with an ejection fraction less than 40% should be given an ACE inhibitor or an ARB and of course beta blockers. Patients with a recent myocardial infarction 40 days after the infarction with an ejection fraction less than 30 and still have reasonable life expectancy should get an implantable defibrillator. In patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, genetic counseling is class 2A. Keeping in mind that there is no evidence to support the use of sacubitril falsartan or MRA in asymptomatic patients before the onset of heart failure. 
The TZDs, the anti-diabetic medications, should not be used. Non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers like verapamil diltiazem, again, should be avoided in stage B or pre-heart failure. For stage C or symptomatic heart failure, there are non-pharmacological measures and, of course, lots of drug therapies, and there are also devices and procedures. Non-pharmacological therapies are important. Patients with heart failure get better results when they are cared for with a multidisciplinary team and get educational support, and this is class 1. Vaccination against influenza and respiratory illnesses can reduce mortality, and this is class 2A. Screening for depression or social isolation, again, is class 2A. These are all non-pharmacological issues. Coming to drugs, the guidelines brought in some fine-tuning for drugs in stage C heart failure with consideration of the economic value of every medicine when high-quality economic analyses were available. Of course, renin angiotensin blockers are a cornerstone in heart failure. Sacubitril valsartan is class 1, a in patients with New York Heart Class 2-3 and they provide high economic value over ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. However, Sacubitril Valsartan did not show benefit in patients with New York Heart Class Functional 1, Functional Class 1 or Functional Class 4 and this is important. And in the last two situations, the guidelines endorse ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers and this is important to remember. Diuretics, of course, as needed, beta blockers, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, and SGLT2 inhibitors are all class 1A. The economic value of all these measures is high, but for SGLT2 inhibitors, the economic value is moderate, probably related to the cost. It's important to note that the guidelines do not recommend a specific sequence for up titration, sequential or parallel, but they stress on repeated trials of up titration of medications until the target doses are achieved. Whenever we achieve these target doses, the outcome is better compared to the starting doses. The five same classes, which are RAS blockers, beta blockers, MRAs, SGLT2 inhibitors, and diuretics as needed, the same apply to heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction, although the strength of recommendation here is weaker. These therapies should continue even if the ejection fraction improves or even if the patient becomes asymptomatic, because there is a high chance of relapse if these guideline-directed medical therapies are withdrawn. Hydralazine nitrate gets class 1 recommendation in African-American patients on top of guideline-directed medical therapies if they are still symptomatic. The recommendation is weaker, it becomes class 2B, if these patients cannot tolerate ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. And there are also other medications that are second line because they are class 2. Ifabradine, when the patient is in sinus rhythm and the heart rate is more than or equal 70 on the maximum tolerated dose of beta blockers. Vericiguat again is class 2 for high-risk patients with recent worsening heart failure despite guideline-directed medical therapy. Digoxin only for patients with persistent symptoms despite guideline-directed medical therapy. Omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids in patients with New York Heart Function Class 2 or 4 to reduce mortality hospitalization is Class 2B, keeping in mind that they might increase the risk of atrial fibrillation. The novel potassium binders, pateromere or sodium zirconium, is indicated and reasonable in patients 
who develop hyperkalemia when they are taking RAS blockers or MRA. On the other hand, several therapies are of unproven value or may even worsen heart failure. These include verapamil, diltiazem, vitamins, nutritional supplementation, hormonal therapies, class 1C antiarrhythmic drugs, saxagliptin, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, TZD anti-diabetic medications. Even amlodipine and nifedipine are not useful unless the blood pressure is uncontrolled on the four or the five guideline-directed medical therapies. What about devices and procedures for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? We have several options. Number one, implantable defibrillators. These are important and are indicated if the ejection fraction remains below 35 after three months of guideline-directed medical therapy with uh, the first-line and the second-line agents, provided the patient is in functional class 1 or 2 or 3, but not in functional class 4 heart failure patients, and also not in patients who are not expected to survive one year. The threshold for a defibrillator implantation can be raised from less than 35 to be 45 in patients with genetic arrhythmic cardiomyopathy. Resynchronization therapy, CRT, is indicated when the ejection fraction is less than 35% with a bundle branch block. In left bundle branch block, the recommendation is stronger. It's class 1 when the QRS duration is more than or equal 150 milliseconds. Becomes class 2A if the QRS duration is more than or equal 120 milliseconds. In non-left bundle branch block, the recommendation is weaker. CRT is class 2A when the QRS duration is more than 150 and is class 2B when the QRS duration is more than 120. CRT is questionable, is class 2B in patients with New York Heart Function class 1. However, there is another situation where it is reasonable to consider CRT, it's a class 2A, in patients who have complete heart block, who need permanent pacemakers, and their ejection fraction is not less than 35, it's between 36 and 50. We know that RV pacing results in deterioration of LV function. So in patients with heart failure who need pacing, then it's reasonable to use a CRT, not a single chamber pacemaker. Surgical revascularization in suitable patients who have multivessel disease or left main stenosis. This can improve the outcome. The guidelines did not show any enthusiasm for percutaneous revascularization in heart failure. Management of valvular heart disease, of course, requires a multidisciplinary team. There is a special focus on mitral regurgitation. The management of mitral regurgitation depends on the degree of mitral regurgitation relative to the LV remodeling. When the mitral regurgitation is disproportionate, out of proportion to the LV remodeling, then patients may respond better to mitral clip, mitral valve surgery, and resynchronization devices. When mitral regurgitation is proportional to the LV dilatation, it may respond to therapies, uh, the first line or the second line therapies, and it can also respond to CRT. Who is the best candidate for mitral clip? It's known as edge-to-edge, transcatheter edge-to-edge mitral repair, or TEER. This is indicated for patients with severe mitral insufficiency, provided they have suitable anatomy on transesophageal echo, and the ejection fraction is not less than 20 because these patients will not improve and not more than 50. So it's between 20 and 50. 
Also, the end systolic dia diameter should be less than 70 millimeters. And the pulmonary artery systolic pressure also should be less than 70 millimeters mercury. If properly selected, then patients who respond to this TEAR therapy, the TEAR mitral edge-to-edge -edge repair, they experience significant improvement in functional class hospitalizations and maybe survive. What about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, HEFPEF? We know that it is on the rise, more in the elderly, in the ladies. It now represents between 30 and 40% of our heart failure patients. Several drugs were tested in the last three years. For this population of preserved ejection fraction, the guidelines recommend diuretics as needed, which is class 1A. Blood pressure control is also class 1. SGLT2 inhibitors, despite the positive results from the Emperor Preserve trial, got class 2A, whereas Secubitril, Valsartan, MRA, and angiotensin receptor blockers were all class 2B. Keeping in mind that nitrates and phosphodiesterase inhibitors sildenafil are all of no benefit. So, we've talked about class stage A heart failure, stage B, and stage C heart failure. What about those miserable patients in stage D, advanced heart failure? What defines advanced heart failure? It's easy to remember by the acronym I need help. I refers to patients who are on intravenous enotropes. N is the New York Heart Association function class 3B or 4, or persistently elevated natriuretic peptides, that's the N. The first E is for end organ dysfunction. The second E is when the ejection fraction less than 35. D is defibrillator shocks. H is more than one hospitalization. E is edema despite escalating diuretics. L is a low systolic blood pressure less than or equal 90 or a high heart rate. P is progressive intolerance or down titration of guideline directed medical therapies. These patients need to be referred to specialized centers because there will be a need for more advanced therapies for heart failure, like durable left ventricular assist devices or cardiac transplantation when suitable. And there are full sections in the guidelines on the selection of patients for the uh, left ventricular assist device, LVAD, or the transplants. I recommend reading the full text document for getting further details on these two situations. And speaking of advanced heart failure, we should of course talk about an acute heart failure hospitalization. This is one of the sentient events in the life of the heart failure patient. It signifies a poor trajectory Precipitating factors include acute coronary syndromes, missing the medications, excessive salt intake, intake of non-steroidants, atrial fibrillation, endocarditis, infections, pneumonia, etc. The hospitalization represents an opportunity for escalation of medical therapy. We should try to maintain the first-line agents as much as we can, because we know that withdrawal is associated with worse outcome. And we know that initiation of RAS blockers and beta blockers is associated with a lower mortality. Diuretics also should not be discontinued prematurely because of small change in serum creatinine, because mild elevations in serum creatinine do not predict worse outcomes, except when patients remain congested. Decongestion requires not only diuresis, but also adjustment of other guideline-directed therapies, because elevated volume load and vasoconstriction, again, can contribute to elevated filling pressures. Intravenous vasodilator therapy in the absence of systemic hypotension. 
These, like nitroglycerin or nitroprusside, may be considered in addition to diuretic therapies for relief of dyspnea in patients who are acutely hospitalized and they get class 2B indication. Venous thromboembolic prophylaxis is class 1, of course, in hospitalized heart failure patients. There should be quality program systems that allow benchmarking and performance measures. They get class 2A. And keep in mind that giving the patient an appointment within one week after discharge is now class 2A in the recent guidelines. In patients who reach the stage of cardiogenic shock, which is of course a high-risk state, defined as a mean blood pressure less than 60 for 30 minutes or more, with evidence of hypoperfusion, these patients should be managed, of course, aggressively. They need inotropes, although there is no robust evidence to suggest that one inotrope is better than the other. If inotropes are not enough, then mechanical circulatory support is needed, and these patients should better be referred to centers where mechanical circulatory support devices are available. We know that those patients with shock are better managed by a multidisciplinary team, and this shock team was associated with 40% improved outcomes compared to those patients who are not managed with a multidisciplinary team. Comorbid conditions in heart failure. Multimorbidity is common in patients with heart failure. More than 80% of patients have two or more additional chronic conditions. Think of hypertension, coronary disease, diabetes, anemia, chronic kidney disease, morbid obesity, frailty, and malnutrition. Let's start first by iron deficiency. This can happen with or without anemia. Intravenous iron replacement is reasonable class 2A because it improves functional class and quality of life. And this has been mostly with ferric carboxymaltose being the agent of choice. Oral iron unfortunately doesn't work and also erythropoietin stimulating agents should not be used to improve morbidity and mortality because they increase thrombotic events including stroke. If there is a suspected sleep disordered breathing, then a polysomnography is reasonable because it will confirm the diagnosis and differentiate obstructive from central sleep apnea. In patients with heart failure and obstructive sleep apnea, CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure, improves the sleep quality and decreases daytime sleepiness. But unfortunately, it did not have an effect on survival. In patients with central sleep apnea, there's warning against using adaptive servo-ventilation because it causes harm and was shown in two trials to increase mortality. For atrial fibrillation, with shed vasque score 2 or more for men, 3 or more for women, of course they should receive chronic anticoagulation therapy, and the direct oral anticoagulants of course are preferred over warfarin. Chronic anticoagulant therapy is also reasonable for men and women without additional risk factors for stroke, and this is a new recommendation. For patients with heart failure and symptoms caused by atrial fibrillation, then ablation of atrial fibrillation is reasonable to improve symptoms and quality of life. It gets class 2A. There are even some trials that showed a mortality benefit, but the guidelines did not endorse AFib ablation for mortality reduction yet. For patients with atrial fibrillation and ejection fraction less than 50, if a rhythm control strategy fails and the ventricular rate remains rapid despite medical therapy, then ablation of the AV node with implantation of a CRT device is class 2A. The guidelines also have sections on cardio-oncology, care issues in ethnic minorities, special populations like heart failure in pregnancy, 
also sections on quality metrics and palliative care, I refer you to the full text of the guidelines for further readings on these topics. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cardio Buzz. Please follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. Later this week, you can read the episode as an article on my LinkedIn profile or view it as a slideshow on Cardio Buzz YouTube channel. The links are in the description. Stay tuned for the next episode, enjoy your weekend, and see you next Saturday.